Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Coach's Journey podcast. This is Robbie, and this is episode 25. How did that happen? We're 25 episodes in. Um, thanks for joining us for this one, and you're in for such a treat. This is an interview with the wonderful Kim Morgan. Uh, now, Kim is probably best known for... Um, founding Barefoot Coaching, one of the leading coach training organizations in the UK with, as Kim says, over 4,000 uh, alumni. And as I say, including a number of friends, colleagues and clients of mine who only have great things to say about that training. Uh, but in this interview, we go right back to the start of Kim's journey. Um, in some ways, we, we bounce off from um, uh, a beautiful mantra that, that Kim has for everything she does. I won't spoil it because Kim reads it out. I, wanna, I want you to hear it in her you know, from her mouth. But it's about the learning space and its power as a vehicle for change. And what Kim says is that's the kind of space she grew up in with parents who she says were really psychologically aware. And that's partly why she went on to train as a therapist in humanistic person-centered therapy before finding herself in need of something grittier. And via Freudian psychotherapy and NLP training, she discovered her gift for developing training itself then, and this is a part of the story that I love, as coaching emerged in the UK, she realised that there was space to create a training course and she just did it. And hearing her talk about how she did that is an absolute pleasure, getting a feel for not only Kim, the expert teacher, trainer, coach, but also um, the entrepreneur. Of course, we get into the story of how Kim built that business. You know, she talks about designing a training that is fierce and compassionate at the same time. She talks about how she just can't stop having ideas. And, and there's a great way story about how she used a coaching tool to create an innovation in her business. Um, and, and overall, we, you know, I just got that feeling for the power of being a, a brave, daring um, leader as Kim clearly is. And then, about 15 years into her barefoot journey, a tragedy struck that altered Kim's perspective on her life and work. And she tells that story beautifully. Uh, and she talks about how remarkably she returned to deepen her practice, grow even further herself, and grow the many success stories of the barefoot alumni, which she says fill her with joy. Um, we get into all kinds of things in the conversation. We talk about how training as a coach mirrors the process of coaching, the way adults learn and how it differs from children, the conditions in which transformational moments occur. And because of Kim's own experience of grief, we talk about the devastation of loss, perspective shifts that can come with grief, how we might find support in the least expected places and how we might support people who are going through loss and grief and in particular what it's important not to say. Now, uh, one of my favourite things about listening back to this interview was hearing Kim and I get to know each other. Um, now, we'd never met before this conversation and at the start you can hear us being polite and friendly um, as we are. And by the end, uh, you can hear, or at least I can hear, I hope you can hear too, that we're having a whale of a time together, having connected really beautifully. Um, and that's important to say, I think, because it feels like a testament to who Kim is. Um, and I think that, that many alumni of Barefoot, I'm sure, will recognise that and many other clients and, and, and colleagues of Kim's will recognise that. That when you're with Kim, you can just be who you are. And that feels like a fundamental part of her and her work um, as a coach, as a trainer. And that's why those words, um, which she says in this, in this episode, are a part of the episode title. 
Now, before we get to uh, the interview with Kim, I wanted to let listeners know that the WBEX Summit is coming up. Um, regular listeners will remember Marsha Reynolds um, talking about her experience and, and the programs she runs with WBEX. Um, for, for those of you who don't know, it's the World Business and Executive Coaching Summit. Um, now, what what happens is there is a f- complimentary pre-summit, which anyone can sign up for free of charge. And it, it's got amazing access to... Uh, presentations, coaching demonstrations, panel discussions, and and various other options, all free of charge, um, and all with leaders and and thought leaders in the coaching industry. So I really encourage you to check that out. It falls slightly awkwardly between episodes of the podcast because it only comes out monthly. So I wanted to let you know now. Um, but if you need a link to sign up or you want a link to sign up, I'll post one on my um, LinkedIn page and I'll put some on the episode page for this uh, episode when they're available, which will be in the next couple of weeks. And I'll also, of course, send out uh, a link and and notify you via the Coach's Journey mailing list. Um, If you're not on that, why not? You can sign up at thecoachesjourney.com. You'll get an, uh, an email every time there's a new episode out. And signing up via one of those links will also as well as getting you into to the WBEX Summit, um, be a way of supporting the Coach's Journey podcast. But that's enough about that. Let's get on with listening to this great conversation with Kim Morgan. I should also apologise that um, I swear uh, quite near the start of this of this interview. So be prepared. Uh, and I entirely blame friend of the podcast and friend of Kim Morgan, Barry Ennis, for my swearing because I'm quoting Barry when I do it. And so, without further ado, here's episode 25 of the Coach's Journey podcast with the amazing Kim Morgan. Kim Morgan, welcome to the Coach's Journey podcast. Robbie Swale, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah. For those of you who are watching, Kim has got a really big smile on her face and actually so have I. So it's a really nice energy to bring to the start of the call. Um, And actually... (laughs) As you just mentioned that, uh, Kim just said before she started that she'd been listening back to a couple of the episodes of of the show, including, I think it's episode nine with Barry Ennis. And of course, I think that episode is the for for listeners to the Coach's Journey podcast, that might be the first time that people heard of you, Kim, in the way that Barry introduced you, which was, um, I don't know if you remember this from listening, the story was something like he'd been going to um I did check this before the episode I haven't got that perfect a memory um he he had he'd, he was investigating coaching and he'd been to some things and had been kind of put off by the things and thought that coaching maybe wasn't for him and then he still had a barefoot afternoon booked in from his research into coaching um and that's the, the company that you run and um he arrived and you were there with this big welcome come in and he internally thought Fuck me! It's Bet Midler. That was those were his words, not mine. It's Barry's fault that I'm swearing now. And um, and then, but it was a really beautiful story because it's like you brought that. I think he called it humanistic approach to coaching that he got through barefoot and he did the course. And you know, I'm really glad that you were there giving that welcome because otherwise Barry might have ended up doing something completely different and we'd have lost him to the world of coaching. Oh, how lovely! Actually, he I think he said that out loud. When he arrived, I don't think he just said it. <laughs> uh, that's fun, and and I'm sure, like we say it about Barry, but <clears throat> excuse me, one of the things I, one of the things I wanted to say to you, I, I knew it would come, I didn't know if it'd come up now, is that um, you know Barry's not the only person I know, client, uh, friend. In fact, Alex, who 
work, Alex, Amy, who works on this podcast with me, writing the copy and the marketing, she's a barefoot yeah. um, coach as well. So there's lots of people that I know in the coaching world now who, who train with barefoot. And it's so great that, that there, I'm sure there are lots of other stories like Barry's of feeling their way into the coaching world, finding their place. And lots of them found it a barefoot. And it's, it, so thank you for doing all that work. Oh, thank you. It's an absolute privilege and a wonder to me, actually, Robbie. We've had, I don't know exactly how many, but over 4,000 people now do the programme. So we've got 4,000 alumni all over the world. I I know loads of them. I can track all their stories. I remember how they came to be there, and it's just a joy to me. Yeah. Yeah, not, and not only that they have changed their lives because you know it, it sounds corny, but actually I did a I did a master's study, did a piece of research a few years ago just to go: is it true? Does this stuff really change people's lives? Because you know, four thousand people and loads of cohorts of delegates. When we look at the evaluation forms, it, they often say, this has changed my life. This has been the best thing I've ever done. And I'm a real feet on the ground realist. And I wanted to know, has it really? And does it last? And actually, my research came out with like 100%. Yes, it does last. It doesn't just last. It builds. So most people who become coaches say it changes their life, their feeling about themselves, their level of confidence. It changes their relationships with their family. They become better parents, better partners. They become better leaders. And and then they get the bug for learning more and more. So they go on and become NLP practitioners or do psychology degrees. And um, and then they pass that on to all the people they're working with. So one of the great joys for me when we used to be all in a room together <laughs> um, until last year, we had we used to have a big annual conference and in a, some London hotel. And it would I always said it's like AbFab does a conference, actually. It was just wonderful it was just hundreds of barefooters coming together and connecting again but when I stand on that stage and look out at all the people that we've trained or you know a small fraction of the people we've trained in my mind I then go and think about each one of those and how many people they've coached and how many other people's lives have changed so yeah, it's amazing, wonderful. I pinch myself because I didn't know that was going to happen. Yeah. Actually. Yeah, and what, uh, I mean, I can imagine that conference really because, you know, sometimes I do catch myself, you know, the moments when, when you doubt doubt what you're doing and you're trying to think like, is this all worth it? Because running a coaching business is not always easy. And what I have, right, is a list. I have a spreadsheet, which I keep up to date with the number of hours I've spent doing it and the list of people and account of the different people and those things. And it's an important part of how I remember that I am progressing and the work I'm doing is growing and remember the impact. But what an absolute pleasure for you to get to be in a literal room obviously not this year we're recording this in late 2020 <laughs> not this year maybe but to be in a room and get to literally yeah. see them in front of you yeah yeah it's amazing and people come and 
tell their stories. Coaching is about stories, isn't it? Mm. People tell their stories of changes they've made to others and changes they've made to themselves. So it's it's my big delight. Um, in fact, I'm thinking of featuring on social media soon just some of those stories because they're wonderful. Mm. Yeah, people are like, uh, I remember one guy coming to see me really um really tentatively asking can I do this course because he'd grown up in care he'd had a really dreadful childhood he'd had no real education to speak of but actually on his own he'd started um he'd started a refuge for male victims of domestic violence and um this our course, as you know, is ICF accredited and carries a postgraduate certificate. And he wanted to do the postgraduate certificate. And I totally put my coach's hat and heart in place and thought, yeah, you know, this is an opportunity for him. He can do it. I, I'm going to believe in him to do it because you don't have to have a first degree to do this postgraduate qualification. So he did it. Um, he built the charity uh, and it became even more successful. He blossomed personally. And this is probably about 20, 15 or 20 years ago, I think, probably. Um, he stays in touch with me. And about three years ago, he wrote to me and, and sent me a photo of him at his master's ceremony. He'd, he'd now done a master's. And it's just those stories of... Yeah, there's a there's a kind of you know a mirroring of coaching of what happens in individual coaching also happens when people train as coaches yeah I mean it's it's it, you know I want to get to your story in a little bit but I think there's just something really interesting in that I, you know I'm curious because I know that that that's certainly what it felt like for me when I did um coach training I trained with a, a kind of startup coach training that's now resting again um you know so they're not they're not operating now but but it definitely felt like that when I did that training about five years ago and I, and I just I mean, maybe this is, this is quite a big question so see see where it goes and see what it feels like but how much how much do you th have you thought about that that idea that this is a this is a you know the coaching process and transformational journey for the people training when designing the way those courses work thought about it a lot um so so the f i think the fundamental point is um the notion of adult learning so the notion that um the person teaching you is not the expert um the, the you bring your own unique experiences and your life journey to that point whether it's the coach training room or whether it's your coaching session you bring your assumptions about yourself your beliefs and through a series of conversations through the creation of a really safe space you start to reevaluate who you are and we teach our coaching program in that way. I want to find something for you on my phone because I've saved this picture. <laughs> and, and this is my kind of mantra for everything that I do. 
Um, it's from, oh no, that's just a picture of little sausages for some reason. <laughs> real sausages. I don't know why that came up. It was in a memory. Let's not go there. So, um, yeah, here it is. This is from uh, Winnicott, D.W. Winnicott, a um, psychologist and paediatrician who was working in the sort of early 1990s, ni- 1900s, sorry, up to about 1960, I think. And he talked about the, the contract as the learning space. I'm going to read the words because I just think they're utterly beautiful. He said the the, the learning space and for learning space to, to carry on your question is either training to be a coach or being coached. The learning space is the optimal development atmosphere and vehicle for change in which meanings can be played with, considered and understood. It's a a potential space. It's a moment in time where we can play. Those are my words. Mm. Uh, He says, an area of psychological experience which is located between wishes and reality, between one's inner and outer worlds. And then he says this, the learning space allows for certainties about self and others you know, you, the coach, the client, the organisation to loosen. And how lovely is that yeah. word? You know, it's, it, it's pulling at the threads a bit in order to allow for playful reflection, creativity and the opening up of new possibilities or to enable shifts in self-identity. I'm happy mm. to send you that, not the cocktail sausages picture, <laughs> but this one. Because I, for me, that sums it up. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we'll put links to, uh, you know, I say this often in the podcast, but we'll put links to the things we talk about in the in the show notes, wherever people are listening and at thecoachesjourney.com. But yeah, that is such a beautiful quote. And there's so much interesting in there. And, uh, you know, I guess what came up for me is like, you you know, you pulled out that word loosen. And that's, isn't that interesting? Because he's talking, he, is this right? He's talking about a learning space. That's how he described yeah. that thing. Isn't it interesting that a lot of the learning spaces that we experience <laughs> aren't about loosening certainties, actually. Um, yeah. They're about tightening certainties, or that's what it sometimes feels like, or it felt like when I was in some of them. And yeah. coaching is definitely different in in that in that way that he describes, that it is often about loosening certainties yes and adult learning so the the everything kind of links up for me I chose to work with the University of Chester because they are fiercely committed to work-based integrative studies work-based learning adult learning Um, and there are a number of um real kind of thought leaders in in adult learning um david mesero often known as jack mesero um who were the first people to go when you're an adult you learn differently from when you're a child um 
And that's because you already come with a view of the world and you already come with experiences. So let's teach them differently. Let's teach people so that we present things as ideas for them to challenge, to filter through, you know, their views and beliefs and values and they either accept them or don't. And as long as you can make a coherent argument for your dismissal of them, that's fine. So that's how we teach our course uh, in a, a really strong adult learning way. It's also kind of, uh, without explicitly saying so, role modelling what it is to be a coach. Um, and for the people on the programme, and I'm sure it was the same for you, you're, you're role modelling what it is to be a client too. And that's how it all works together so very beautifully. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and so, Kim, like we could we could go off in that. And I want to I want to definitely want to catch more of the work that you, you do with Barefoot as, in the conversation. But I wonder if you could take us back to when you first came across the idea of coaching as as we are talking about it now, I guess. Um, you know, do you remember when that was and how you first came to it? Kind of. Kind <laughs> of. I mean, I think. I, th- I probably need to just go right back if that's okay but I'll yeah. try to do that fairly quickly because I'm quite old so we could be here for a long time <laughs> um I think I think my my parents were very um psychologically aware people my mom was a social worker a probation officer my dad was just a man who was interested in personal development so I grew up in that environment anyway and and just Um, sorry this is a curious thing that I just got curious about how did that you know his interest in personal development how did that show up oh well I think it was so both my parents were EastEnders um uh were real working class EastEnders and they grew up in the sort of post-war boom, where for the first time ever, the average man in the street was able to make something of himself, I think, and they truly benefited from that. I think it stemmed from that, really. But he had a wisdom about him. In fact, my my children used to call him... (laughs) I don't know why this has come to me. My children used to call him Nelson Man Grandad. (laughs) Because he was kind of senatorial and, and 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 he always used to sort of tell me to change perspective and reframe and move, you know, it's just, just yeah. little things like that. And my mom was very much counselling everybody. So it was kind of destined, I think. Um, I originally trained as a therapist. Uh, I trained in two schools of therapy, humanistic person-centred therapy, which I thought was really useful, but kind of not dynamic enough for what I wanted. It was a beautiful foundation about having unconditional positive regard and empathy and listening. But at the time I was working for a charity in East London and Essex. I was working with, following in my mum's footsteps at that point, working with really severely disadvantaged families in just about every way you could imagine. And just sitting and smiling benignly at them wasn't making a difference. Mm. 
Um, so I thought I need something else grittier. Now, this was a long time ago. This was in the early 80s. So you, you have to know that in the early 80s, psychology at that point was still only focused on what was wrong with people, not what was right with people. Um, we've come such a long way in such a short time. Uh, so I, the only other thing that I could find was a Freudian psychotherapy course, which uh, was the complete opposite. The way that I was taught all that time ago was to not smile, was to be really kind of like a grey rock, to give nothing of yourself. And, and Freud's original reasoning for that was to create in your client uh, conditions of optimal frustration to create conditions of optimal frustration so that they would show their defenses so that in that faced with that they would either try to win you over they would try to make you laugh they would feel victimized, they would get angry, and then you kind of go, okay, I can see what some of their, you know, uh, adapted behaviors are. Anyway, long, long time doing it, but I just, everything in my body said, I don't, I don't agree with this. And, and uh, <clears throat> eventually, um, eventually I stopped doing it because I, I just, and again, the families that I was working with, before they were saying, why are you just smiling at me like that? And now they were going, like, why aren't you smiling at me? Why are you just staring at me? So so I, yeah, I, I went down that route to the therapist and then I left it. And just around that time, um, NLP, Solution Focused Brief Therapy, Positive Psychology, Robert Holden's work on happiness, they were all kind of breaking through. And I just did, I, I just, you know, drank in everything I could from all those people. And I kind of set myself up as a personal development trainer. Um, I did women's assertiveness development. I trained as a springboard trainer in women's development. Um, and then a couple of things happened. I still hadn't come across coaching. Um, <clears throat> but the first thing that happened was I was working for Relate, teaching their counsellors some sort of NLP stuff. And um, and, they, and Relate said to me, could you be our sort of person who goes into corporate organisations and, and teach them some basic communication skills? And so I started to do that. And that was a complete revelation to me because I'd, I'd been immersed in this world from my parents through all my training and everyone I knew. We all knew about this stuff and I assumed the whole world knew about it. When I went into organisations, they, they didn't know it. And I was like, wow, here's an opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, they don't know this. I was, And that's one thing, that is a tip that I would always say to any coach, never assume that people know this. 
you're nodding in such agreement do you want do you yeah want to... I mean like just the thing that comes up for me is it it's really easy as a coach to forget how unusual a coaching conversation is yeah. like how how 99% of more like just don't involve that level of listening don't involve that level of attention being put on the conversation yeah. so when you're having a coach you know this is this is a coaching specific but and I but I totally know what you mean as well in the example you're giving but coaching specific it's like never forget that the person sitting opposite you, no matter how well you feel the session is going, has probably had, you know, a handful of hours in their life where they've had someone listening to them as as well as you are listening right now. And it's not true of everyone because some people have been through coaching or therapy or, or different things before. They happen to have had amazing parents who knew about listening intuitively or, or through learning. But yeah, mostly the things we uh, so one of the things I sometimes say to coaches is by the time you've finished a coach training, you've thought about coaching more than like 99.999% of people that, have, that are in the world, you know. <laughs> so true. And and from a commercial perspective, that's a really important point um, because you can tend to negate the value of what you bring if you if you think it's nothing special it is something special it's a real gift um I say that because I have a tendency to do it because you know I've noticed that sometimes for example if I'm introducing what to us is a very tried and tested and perhaps even overused coaching technique like the wheel of anything I found myself sort of saying to groups of people, oh, oh, I'm sure you've already, you all know this. And then when they have to say, no, I don't, that makes them not feel very good about themselves. So I now enter every conversation bearing those gifts with pride. And if mm. people know about it and they've done it before, it doesn't seem to matter either. <laughs> yeah, right, right. It, it, you know, it, even if I go on oh, the old wheel of anything and I do it, I still have real breakthrough moments. So, so yeah, so that was one thing that I was like, gosh, there's something in this. Not, not everyone knows it. I, as a therapist, I did, and I assume that most people did. And roughly roughly how long have you been working as a therapist? You, you, you uh, know, so, so, yeah, so, roughly how long? So that was probably about... <sighs> five years in I think mm. so a chunk of experience of, of doing that yeah, yeah yeah then um yeah so then I carried on I was doing this work it was called barefoot training um why were you called barefoot training because <laughs> there was a poem that I had seen and loved written by a woman who was 89 I think and it was called um, I'd Pick More Daisies. And it was just reflecting on her life and saying, if I had my life to live over, I would take more chances, be sillier, that kind of thing. Mm. And there was a line in it that said, uh, and I would start barefoot earlier in the spring and stay that way until fall. Mm. I loved the sentiment. So I loved the sentiment. That was one part of it. The other part of it is, remember, this is all a long time ago. There was no internet. Um, there was yellow pages. And if you had a business, um, business advisors used to say, 
get um, a name that's near the beginning of the alphabet. <laughs> Those people are, aren't going to go through the whole thing. That's so good. I love those stories. Like there's a there's a fantasy novelist I like called Robin Hobb. Um, and that's a pen name that, you know, um, I actually I don't actually remember her her real name now, which is, you know, partly because her branding is so good. Robin Hobb is such a good name. And she chose it because she thought she chose it partly because she thought fantasy readers might react better if it could be a man. Yeah. And then she chose Hobb because she went into a bunch of bookshops and H was what was at eye level. And that's why it's, there. So it's essentially the same, yeah. like these interesting tactical choices as part of it. So meaning and also usefully the start of the uh, alphabet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and then I think I heard about coaching somehow. I met a woman who had trained with Coach U. She was of somebody else who was a women's development trainer uh, in the same organization that I worked in and she started telling me about it and and then I thought I think that's what I'm doing actually mm-hmm. um and then I thought Robbie and I'm always a, a bit uncomfortable about saying this because it seems like incredibly <laughs> but I thought I can I I got worried because the training that I'd had as a therapist was really rigorous um, and there was such a lot about uh, contracting and boundaries and self-knowledge and self-awareness and those were the bits that I took as being really valuable and I thought I think I can if people are going to be working with others as coaches, I want to contribute to that conversation. I want to contribute to the um, teaching of them. So I wrote a course and I wrote, and, and even today, the course uh, nods to everything that I've already said to you. It's this bits of Freud, there's bits of it's truly eclectic. Um, and I also had a contact at a university. It wasn't the University of Chester initially. It was accredited by another university. And I thought, I also know what, uh, how long it has taken for um, the therapy world to become accredited. It's Even therapy is still not a profession. Uh, there still isn't one governing body for therapy in the UK. And I thought, I need a stamp for this as well because also I'm not really known so I got it accredited as a postgraduate certificate um, and then started teaching coaches that was uh, about nine, 1998 I think and had you so did you train with coach you before that or with somebody else or you just learned the stuff and wrote the course I didn't train with anyone amazing I just so good. I just wrote the course um, <laughs> because it's it's like it's this really tricky thing for coaches that the all those things you've just said are important for the world of coaching, the certification, the fact that the credibility of, of the academic study, the rigor, doing that personal work, all those things you talk about, and there's something also exciting about it, which is that you don't need those things <laughs> and it's like a really tricky kind of energy and paradox to hold I think yeah yeah 
Yeah, I know. If I think back now, that's why I sort of squirmed a bit and said, yeah. oh, gosh, that felt a bit arrogant. But um, somebody had to write the courses, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And were there were there other trainings in the UK at the time? How how what did the landscape look like? I wasn't aware of any. I and but I don't want to say there weren't because I wouldn't want you know. I I wasn't aware of any. I think probably Sir John Whitmore was training people in the Grow Model around that time. Um, uh, I think there were some NLP coaching programs. So uh, Joseph O'Connor, I know, I worked with him a little bit and he was doing some NLP coach, specific NLP coach training. I'm sure there were others, maybe even the coaching academy had already started then. Um, But I wasn't, I wasn't aware of them. I sort of plowed my own furrow, (laughs) Uh, started this course, um, I think as about, five people on the first one amazing most of them were my friends yeah how much did you charge for it then do you remember i think it was about i don't even remember i feel like it was about 1800 pounds maybe yeah it was always 12 days yeah uh yeah but i think only two people paid and everyone else was a ringer yeah Nice work, though. You filled it, right? Or it, it, you got enough people that it could go. Yeah, yeah. Nice. And so, hmm, I mean, there's lots of ways we could go from here, really. I guess it's... So I'm, I guess I'm curious. It's like there's something really admirable about the courage and the kind of, what would you call it? Like the, just the, I'm going to do this about that moment where you were, you were, you decided you took all that, you took all this stuff that you knew. And I guess, is this right? That you kind of, you intuitively knew that these things that you've been doing, the counseling, the, the more Freudian psychotherapy, the, um, uh, the, all the training and different things, you kind of knew that it all added up to this thing, but how did you take that and form it into a learning experience? Do you, like, how was that first training that, and, and, how yeah how did you make it it was yeah that's a great question remember I was also a seasoned trainer as well a seasoned developer of courses and workshops so I wasn't just a therapist in fact interestingly when I finished my um Freudian psychotherapy training on the last day of the program they the tutors said we're going to give each of you a a virtual gift and as we sat around the table they said you know to and to so and so we wish you more confidence and and um we had only been training one-to-one therapy and uh, and then they said to me we wish you groups and groups and groups Mm. and I said why <laughs> and they said because you were made to work with groups of people mm. um, and that was a lovely positive hypnotic message too I think it gave me a lot of confidence it buoyed me but I do love groups I do love groups um, and so I yeah I'd done and I'd also done in those days, sort of qualifications in 
training and facilitation and training design, you know, educational qualifications as well. So I had a stack of disparate things that added up. Um, so what what did I want? I wanted um, I wanted practice. Definitely, lots of practice, some theory. I wanted uh, ref- uh, opportunity for reflection um, and observation in just uh, just the same way that I learned. I remember the ways that I'd learned best were when the whole group of therapists watched me uh, doing a therapy session, like a goldfish bowl thing, and and nearly destroyed me with their criticism. But those were the moments when I learned. So I wanted it to be fierce and compassionate all at the same time. Um, I wanted it to be modular in in line with work-based learning. You you learn something, you go away, you try it out in real life, you you come back, you reflect on it. So I had all the elements from other things that I've been doing. The main thing that I did then from a commercial point of view rather than an educational point of view was, um, like I said, I didn't think anyone would come if, like Kim Morgan said, she's running course when Joseph O'Connor was or or, or Sir John Whitmore. So I I got lots of well-known guest speakers (laughs) to come in. So Nancy Klein, right from the outset. Amazing. Um, uh, Jamie Smart in those days who'd worked with me for a long time. Damien Hughes taught on the course. Uh, Julie Starr. Uh, lots and lots of people who I, I can't even remember all of them over time. John Perry, an amazing uh, psychologist. Uh, so that was, that drew people. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a real sense of your business smart that's a weird american phrase isn't it but there's something about like it sounds like you had I don't know how much of it you thought about really carefully or how much of it was just intuition you were following but that's a really smart way like in some ways that's a model that people follow a lot in um, you see a lot of them I don't know if you get them on the internet you know like invited to an online summit right where in fact I got invited to one once right so I one of the reasons that I um ended up within a little audience of coaches as I wrote an article about how I'd grown my coaching business and how I'd shifted to full time. And it went mini viral. So a few thousand people read it and and I ended up with this little audience of coaches, which in the end is why there's this podcast and all that kind of thing. But at one point I got invited onto a, someone was creating like an online summit for how to become a full-time coach and they Googled it. And if you Google how to become a full-time coach, amazingly, this article of mine actually comes up, I think, on the first page. So this woman was like, this is great. Come on. And then she basically asked me, how many people are on your mailing list? And I said, 300. And she said, I'm sorry, we can't have you. Because what she <laughs> was like, oh, come on. I've got loads of interesting things to say. But um, oh. I've, I've got my own podcast now. So, you know, I'm not, yeah. I have, and I haven't invited her on. No, um, but, um, <laughs> but it's like that. W- what you did was before that was at least... It's, it feels to me like in this industry now, that's a kind of tried and tested route. You don't have to be as blatant about it as that particular person was. But a way to grow something is to partner with people who yeah. who can bring, you know, they can bring something to you, which might be the audience that, you know, Nancy or Jamie or those other people had. And you can bring something to them, which is the structure and, and, and some other things. But it sounds like 
you know, do you remember where that idea came from? It's or was it intuition? Yeah, I, or? No, I do. It, I I learned it from somebody who I knew. Um, so uh, so this was I, I knew I had a friend who was really kind of brave and maverick and would just phone famous people and invite them to come to his conferences and I would I would stand by and watch this and think surely you can't surely you can't and then I saw all these people said yes and um there, there was a point in my life when I first tried it and that was uh, similarly I moved from I moved from uh, in the Essex I was living at and so I moved from Essex to the Midlands uh, and I set up a I, I I didn't have any network there and I was I put on a day in Nottingham called change your life over lunch <laughs> it was very ambitious it was for women it was a day for women called change your life over um, over lunch uh, and I literally went around leafleting and talking to everybody and trying to get people to come to it um, and I thought again they won't come for me they don't know who any who I am or anything so I phoned a woman who was a flirt coach she was on television okay. and I said to her could you, she come be a guest speaker she said yes how much how much can you pay me uh, no, I said, how much did you charge? She said, I think she said £3,000. And I said, oh, no, I'm sorry. She said, well, how much have you got? I said, 300 And she went, oh, all right, then I'll do it. <laughs> and that was that was wonderful. So she came and spoke at that conference. I spoke at that conference. Um, I got lots of clients from that conference. I hope she did too. Um so I, I'd learned it from someone I knew who I saw doing it and I thought it was really brave and daring, but I noticed that most people said yes. I now know. I usually don't get paid for keynote speaking, but I'm always delighted to go because it's, you know, an opportunity to, to let people know what you do. Um, so, yeah, I think it was just that. But I think I've always had a, a, an entrepreneurial streak as well. I, I can't stop having ideas. <laughs> it's great. It's great. And, and look, I want to, yeah, we would definitely make sure we get to, you know, one of the things I was really curious about is that I'm sure there's been innovation going on in your, in your company this year, but I'm sure there always would be, and I'd be curious what's, what's coming up and all those kind of things. And, Oh, yeah, get some of your other ideas. In fact, I pulled out these earlier on. Uh, I don't know if you can see, for people who are listening, I pulled out uh, Kim Morgan coaching cards for every day, which I think I bought on Amazon. You can get them on Amazon, right? And uh, I haven't used them. I was thinking, I was looking at them before this. I think I haven't used them this year because mostly I use them as icebreakers in different ways when I'm, yeah. when I'm running stuff. And I haven't been in a room with, any, with anyone in 2020, really. That's but, um, you, yeah. you know, these kind of, you know, just that, I'm bringing that in because it's like clearly, what you've just said is true there's all these ideas and innovations and we've just heard it about having a coach training which was you know it, it didn't it wasn't that you saw what someone else was doing and thought I could do that better it was oh there's this thing here and I want to train people in it yeah yeah um can I just say something about those cards as well yeah yeah because um 
because there's relevance here as well for coaches and coaches working with businesses. Um, we teach on the programme, I'm sure something that most other programmes teach. We call it vision chairs, but it's where you effectively put two chairs in front of yourself and uh, you uh, think about your current situation, usually something that you want to change, maybe that you want to get a fit or um, do more exercise. And then you uh, imagine in a period of time, five years ahead or three years ahead, one of those chairs represents no change, that you haven't actually done anything, that time has gone by and you just see yourself what and, and you have a look at yourself then and you think how do I feel what do I think um who will I be then what might what else might be happening around me if I am still in the same place if you want to really kind of crank up someone's motivation you can put another chair behind that another five years hence and um mm. and the other chair represents the chair of what well what if I do it you know um it's a well a tried and tested method in coaching um, to associate us with the consequences of our behaviours uh, and see what the real cost or benefit might be. Um, so one year, my then uh, only member of staff, uh, Cara, uh, who worked for me for many years, and I went to... Uh, some CIPD conference and we took a stand it was kind of first time we'd done it it was really expensive <laughs> we got there and we our stand was really awful I think we'd like got a few posters and everyone else was coming and constructing these whole stands and they had TVs and oh, we just stood behind this table and we also just had a few leaflets so when we got back, um, we sat down together and did that exercise. We said, what if this time next year we go to the conference uh, like that? You know, what would that be? Uh, and then we said, and what if we don't? What would that be? And and then you go and actually sit in that chair. That's the part where you sit in that future chair where you've achieved what you want to have achieved. And you talk back to yourself today uh, and say, working backwards, how you did it. And through doing that exercise, we said, we want to have colourful things <laughs> that cost about £10 so that when people walk by they're intrigued and also things that will engage people and that's how the cards came about mm-hmm. uh, and and I wanted to say that because not only is it a really lovely story and I, I, I Cara doesn't work for me anymore but I honour her for that because that was she drove that um, but actually just how much you can use what sometimes appear to be slightly out there creative exercises for business planning and business development yeah absolutely yeah absolutely and and probably I'm just thinking about this probably that was the first time I heard of barefoot was I'd seen someone using some coaching cards and I'm not sure if this is true I don't think the ones that I'd seen were barefoot ones 
and I'm not, I'm not 100% sure about the the order, but it was definitely a part of that becoming aware of of the company was I was like, ah, for that workshop I'm running, I want some cards, a bit like those ones that that person had. And when I looked it up online, I saw these and I kind of, I, think, I can't remember if they were like some of the questions were on the Amazon page or something. And somehow I had enough. I was like, yep, I'll get them. And they're great. They're so useful. In, and you could use them in, in lots of different ways. But um, thank you. yeah, there you go. There's the, there's the seeds of the business development running on many years later in different ways. Yeah. 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 And so I guess there's still, there's still a piece that I want to check in and I want to kind of, before we get onto what the other things that are happening now and the innovations, which we definitely want to do in this conversation, I guess there's just something really, there's something that's really interesting to me about just this way that you, you created this thing <laughs> and we've heard some of it, but it's like, it's, you know, creativity is it's kind of endlessly fascinating because you created something from nothing yeah. and you weren't, you were, you were doing what, I think mostly people do when they do that kind of thing, which is you were bringing loads of things from the past and and your journey into place and you were an expert trainer. And so you made something that was good, right? That was an important part of why it was successful undoubtedly is because you had all that skill, but, and part of it might've been the business development of having people like the people you mentioned coming in, but how did you decide what to, I guess you decided you talked about how the program works. How did you decide what it would what it would contain at the start? It's a really good question. Um, I think. I mean, I think in a way I've already said it. So, mm. um, uh, listening. Um, and and questioning and uh, building a relationship and contracting had to be there and those were all things that I'd learned anyway in my therapeutic training um, we had more NLP in the early days more explicit NLP because I was sort of really strongly into working with NLP then but um, also create creative ways of working so it, it, the the choice of what went in it stemmed from my belief and my years of experience of working with people remember people from really disadvantaged backgrounds through to suddenly then catapulted into working with uh, really uh, highly successful people and people in business um, and uh, a, a real belief in that Winnicott potential space mm. and the idea that within that potential space it is not just a blooming cozy chat it's not a transactional arrangement it's a fierce attachment from the coach to helping that person do be whatever they want to be to to loosen those things that are keeping them where they are um and to do that you need to be uh you need to be bold and you need to be playful and you need to as far as i'm concerned uh artificially recreate the conditions that naturally bring about change so I mentioned uh, Jack Mesirov earlier. He, he identified 
when transformational moments naturally occur. And they include things like having a disorienting dilemma, being in a state of puzzlement, the presence of an empathetic provocateur, uh, which I think is a better word for a coach. <laughs> it was a bit of a mouthful. Um, the recognition that other people share our feelings. And those are also things that I always hold in mind, the normalisation factor. That's why I love groups, recognising that other people share our feelings, being empathetic and provocative as a coach all at the same time. And then kind of artificially recreating that disorienting dilemma like the chairs like the vision chairs you're you're bringing into the room it hey this is what it's going to feel like if you don't do this thing if you get to the end of your life and you still haven't done it um and and so i chose i think exercises that allowed that to happen creative exercises changing perspective exercises, exercises that smack people in the face of this actually really matters to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, one of the other, another guest, um, I think it was Toku McCree who I had on the, on the podcast. He, he was talking about that in the, I think, it, I think it was him was talking about his dad, right? How his dad, it was really that, you know, it was that his dad, um, when he, as soon as he'd been kind of saying he wanted to exercise more for his for years, if this if this isn't if this isn't from that episode for anyone who's listening who remembers, it's somewhere else that I've heard this exact same story recently. You know, his dad had been one way for years, and then he had a medical diagnosis, which is what happens sometimes to people, which said if you don't get in shape, um, you're gonna die. <laughs> and he got in shape like that, right? Yeah. Because he'd suddenly seen, he'd had the, I can't remember what the words you just used, but the disorienting experience, right? Which was, ah, this thing is going to happen. Yeah. And then suddenly there's the condition, you know, there's conditions for learning. And, you know, he, that suddenly he did create the change. And that exercise with the chairs is a super cool way of bringing people into that space. And the tension between what, what happens if you do nothing and what happens if you do what you say you're going to do, like, that's a really powerful motivator. And if you really hold people in that space of this is how it could be. So I've used it for years effectively with, you know, stopping smoking. I've taught it to police uh, officers to uh, work with women victims of domestic violence who traditionally don't eventually go to court. Um, it's incredibly powerful. I was talking to a dentist the other day about you know about this we all know what we should do coaching isn't about giving people information they know that it's there on the internet everywhere you turn um it's about finding those levers that they haven't yet found to be motivated to do it and she she said everyone knows they should floss <clears throat> most people don't floss every day and I said when do they she said when they lose the tooth and, and we we're kind of you know, preempting that in the coaching room a lot of the time. Mm. Mm. I mean, we could we could definitely jump off there somewhere, but I want to hold those a little bit too. I guess I'm curious then. So, alongside as Barefoots as a training organization has grown, I know that you also do coaching work yourself, and there's you know various and Barefoot as a company does coaching work for organizations. So how has that evolved alongside the training? 
Um, yeah, that's um, that. They're all interconnected, really. <clears throat> so I I started the training. I can't, Robbie. I can't even properly remember the timeline. I can't even remember if I'd started calling myself a coach before I started uh, started doing the coach training. I think I probably had so I always had my own individual clients. Started the uh, coach training program. Continued to have individual clients as well. Many of them people from the coach training program in those days, and um, and then as all as the training program grew slowly organizations would send people on the program and then they'd often say can you come back into the organization so they're kind of you know self-perpetuating things um uh, and that for for many many years the the largest uh, part of our income was from the coach training. Um, coaching in organisations, we, we did. It was great, but it wasn't a, a huge part of our uh, sales. Uh, and one-to-one coaching wasn't because um, it was it was basically me and one or two other assistants. So it was all me. I taught every single course um, for a number of years. Uh, I did all the one-to-one coaching for a number of years. I didn't, you know, I've sort of said, oh, yeah, I'm really entrepreneurial or I'm really, uh, and I am really entrepreneurial in a creative way. But what I didn't think about was expanding the business <laughs> and other people doing it. It seems crazy that I didn't think that, but I just got in a track of that, you know, being a one-woman band. Um and and then I did uh and I did it under you know circumstances that I hadn't uh expected and didn't want. Um but one of my um, daughters received a, a sudden and shocking terminal diagnosis from being perfectly, apparently perfectly well to having an X-ray and being given about a month to live. And it was the, you know, shocking, shocking, terrible, tragic blow. She was 28. Um, and... Uh, yeah, it was utterly devastating. So I received that phone call out of the blue um, and I just left the business. I was on the 4th of January 2013. Um, I left the business. Uh, I literally uh, didn't even give it another thought Um she died in April 2013, uh, and I, then I was grief-stricken and traumatised. And in my absence, people picked up the pieces, you know, the people who worked with me in the office and then some others uh, who'd, who'd done some associate work for us. All together, they held it all together. Uh, and I didn't care a damn what happened to it, actually. Um, 
eventually uh, eventually I came back I have to say probably for a good three or four years probably in some sort of state of I don't know shut down mess um, and only in under those circumstances which are really complex it's really complex and uncomfortable to say this but only under those circumstances did I realize then that actually it didn't all depend on me uh, and more people and I didn't also I didn't want to I couldn't do it I wasn't personally resourced enough I, if somebody came to me and said oh you know I want, I'd like to earn another 200,000 pounds a year I probably would have like you know jumped out of my chair and beaten them up or something because I had a very different perspective at that point so um so it was only through those tragic circumstances that I I stepped back and I started to use an associate model, and that uh, and the business has grown, you know, uh, significantly since that time in terms of turnover, and in terms of corporate work that we do. Uh, and in terms of the number of courses, because, uh, you know, it, there was a finite amount that I could do when it was just me. So that's, um, yeah, that's my sort of uh, long and uh, emotional answer to the different strands of the business. It's, it, it didn't really have many different strands until that time. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Kim, and, you know, what must be our kind of... Most of us have some experience of loss in different ways, but that is a particular kind of loss that, you know, touches touches the heart. So thank you for sharing it um, and holding that complexity of seeing how it also has, a, has affected the way you work and, you know, not only in bad ways, right? It's like... It's a really, you know, a complex thing that I hear there. You know, I, I noticed, we haven't really talked about them yet, but you've written two books. And in um, in the one that you wrote with Jeff Watts, the, uh, the Coach's Case book, one of the chapters in it, and you kind of point this out in the, I think the introduction is, is a bit different. Most of the chapters in it are about a kind of trait that people perhaps come to... I don't know what you'd call it, get trapped in, I think is, is the language you use in the book. And then the last chapter, though, is, is I think it's the last chapter, is coaching for loss. Yeah. And that, you know, that catches the eye, really, or caught the eye for me, I think, even before I knew that story, because there's something, you know, we've all, yeah, like I said, we've all had our experiences of, of grief, of loss, you know, actually you saying 2013 reminded me that in 2013, two friends of mine who were under the age of 45 died that year uh, in different circumstances. But, it, you know, it was like death really was showing up in life at that point for me. And yeah, last year I had a year, a year of death as well in some ways. And particularly last year, more so than in 2013, because I'm much more self-aware now than I was then, or I'm, I see my processes more, or I, and I had, I had more support and, and they were kind of closer losses somewhat, um, you know, become really just aware of how complex an emotion 
if it is an emotion, grief is. Yes. And and I guess that when I was in it last year, which was like my grandma and an elderly aunt, and we had two miscarriages, it's like a lot, but it, it's just such a such a complex emotion. It, you know, I was just looking at it going, this is really unlike the, the loss and the things that come after it. And I was noticing the similarities that I'd had with, with breakups, with, uh, you know, other forms of loss that weren't people, but, it, but the people felt like the, the deepest, the hardest to kind of hold. It's such a complex thing. And, and I just wonder from your reflections, from the sense of, from, from what it, you know, what came up as you and Jeff wrote that, that chapter or that part of that book, what are the, what are your reflections on, on loss, on grief, but perhaps particularly with that frame of when you're, when our clients, when all, all the people we love um, have suffered a loss, what, how do we hold that and, and how do we help them? Yeah, thank you, uh, Robbie, for talking about your losses too, and I'm, I'm sorry for them. Um, I've. It, it won't surprise you to know that when I was ready, I started to do a lot of learning about mm-hmm. loss and grief, um, and I. I knew that my tendency was to sort of rush off and start a charity and or start doing that sooner. I, but I knew that I had to sit with my own grief and get to a point where it was in an okay place for me to start helping others. But now I do. Now I offer coaching for grief and loss. Um, and so I... I I think I've learned a lot about it. I learned a lot when um, Karis was ill and dying. I, I learned a lot. I learned a lot of those things that I had heard other people say, but I didn't really know were true. I learned how much people don't know what to say mm. um, uh, and how some people even cross the street to avoid you. Um, I learned how I didn't know what to do with myself and how few resources there were that I could find actually and how uh, all the places that I knew to go, all the sort of therapists and coaches also didn't really know what to do with me either. Um, And so I set about trying to understand it a bit more it's it, it what I know is it's not a problem to be solved um it's something that has to be held and contained and um it's not a quick fix um I also I learned a few, some useful things if they're useful to anyone listening to this that grief and loss are emotional responses to a change in or an end of a familiar pattern of circumstances. And that doesn't just mean the death of a loved one or the death of someone. 
what I learned is loss is loss and how we feel about a loss is what matters. It's an emotional response to something that's changed. It's an emotional response to what you're not going to have. And that might be a person in your life. It might be a job, like in the current circumstances, a job that you no longer have. It might be a, a, a loss of a you know, an aspect of your health. It might be a loss of your identity in some way. Even even positive changes, um, even losses, changes that we seek out can sometimes bring with them grief, a sense of grief. And I, I noticed, um, I noticed when my dad was in the, a care home in his you know last years how many of the of the old men particularly more than the women just talked about who they used to be um and, and they were clearly experiencing such a loss of identity and couldn't accept the identity of being uh, old so i i learned that loss is not hierarchical as well you really gently and respectfully said to me you know the loss that you've had is a particular type and I thank you for that but they all are and that's what I learned there is no hierarchy in this you know you feel what you feel and if if somebody's grandparent dies and they're 108 you you might say oh well they were 108 what did you expect but it's not about that it's what you feel so um I've read lots of really wonderful books about grief um, and how it persists and how it shows up. I, I can't remember where I saw this, but I use a lovely metaphor that it's like glitter, that you suddenly one day you've got a bit on your cheek and you go, where did that come from? It shows up when you least expect it. And and that work, group work for other people who are grieving is really helpful because it kind of normalises. Um, there's lots. I, I, run a, I run a course on it now. Uh, we have a group of people within Barefoot who are interested in supporting people with grief and loss. Um, and it's complex. And it just occurs to me, you know, obviously Barefoot is one of the places people could go. But if people are listening to this and they're right in the middle of of something, is there some, are there particular places or resources or I don't know what it would be that you would point people to? Um I think it's so individual. Um, obviously, grief counselling, grief therapy, cruise bereavement services. There are specific bereavement services for your particular kind of loss. Um, there is a, a programme called the Grief Recovery uh, Method as well, which takes a, a very kind of pragmatic approach to grief uh, and that exists in the UK too there there's was, was recently a great um, 
uh, sort of online conference called Good Grief, the Good Grief Fest. Uh, and and I've I've noticed that people are now talking about grief and loss a lot more. I think mm. the current uh, COVID situation has brought that to our our minds. But I think there's been a a movement over the past few years. There were a few footballers, weren't there? Rio Ferdinand, who's yeah. very openly about the, the death of his wife. There was a cricketer, I think, as well, whose wife died. Um, um so i think i'm really really happy about that because i think as a stiff upper lip british culture we don't do grief well yeah yeah that rio ferdinand documentary anyone who's listening i really encourage them to check it out it's a there's a bbc documentary that was made i don't know if you if you saw it when the, i did yeah in the aftermath of that is yeah there's a lot again it's you know it's such a complex and individual thing but it was a yeah, it was a very courageous thing of him to to do that and them to do that. And yeah, I, think, uh, I think I think it's so important. A few after after my daughter died, a couple of years after my daughter died, I spoke at uh, a, a conference, a coaching conference, and I I'm two coaches. And I mentioned, I didn't talk explicitly about coaching for grief because I wasn't doing it then, but I mentioned coaching people who happened to be bereaved. And there was a bit of an uproar, actually, a bit of a a resistance, which I still encounter from people saying this is the domain of therapy. Um, And... um, so so I'm always careful to say that, you know, any coaches positioning their, themselves as working uh, to support people through grief need to be really clear about their own uh, limits and uh, limitations and their knowledge about when to refer on to other psychiatric or therapeutic or mental health professionals. But on the other hand, who is not going to be bereaved at some point in their life? Uh, And recently, actually, I spoke at another conference about a year ago. It's a conference that I speak at quite regularly. It's in the West Midlands and it's... um, it's a coaching pool. It's the West Midlands coaching pool. So you know where that where sort of public health organ public organisations, governments, and local authorities have coaches, uh, and they train them together. Um, uh, and they said to me, "What can you do this year?" Because <laughs> I've run through my repertoire now with them. What can you do this year? I said, "How about something on coping with loss and grief and change?" And they went, "Oh." don't know about that maybe it's a step too far so in the end they said okay all right we'll we'll give you a workshop and they and they put me in the little room you know when you do a conference and and you get the little room that no one's going to come in and by the time they'd taken the bookings they said to me you're in the main room because so many people booked to come to it and that told me something it's needed it's a 
I'm in the early stages of really thinking about it. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'd be interested to hear other people's thoughts, actually, if you get any, you know, if you get feedback on this, I'd be interested to hear other people's thoughts. But um, I'm a great believer in the fact that anyone can support you through difficult times. I, I, I went on a bit of a, you know, kind of calling in all favours from every therapist, every coach, everyone I knew after my daughter died. I just, anyone who said, can I help? I said, yes, thank you. And one of the people who was most wonderful was the girl who used to do my nails. Yeah, you find wonderful support in the least expected places. Mm. And I guess, that you know, for coaches, if you work long enough, you know, like you say, who doesn't suffer these kind of loss in, in all its many forms? If a coach is coaching people, they are going to come across. Sometimes they're going to be the person who is there the day someone's sister has been diagnosed with a terminal illness or the day after someone has or got the news that they're losing their job or whatever it is. And, you know, yes, there's a, there may be a point where we need to refer people on, but in that moment, we need to be, you know, or there is a an opportunity to be some version of the person who did your nails. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and, and also it's probably worth saying here that, you know, um the the short course that I teach is just to give people it's not to turn people into grief coaches, but to almost give you some tips about what not to say. Yeah. Uh, the grief recovery method that I mentioned, they did they've over the years done quite a lot of research on the sort of categories of things that people say to you in a very well-intentioned, well-meaning way, but actually they're of no value at all. And if you even just know not to say those, like don't say, oh, you'll find a better something in time, you know. Yeah. Don't say everything happens for a reason. Don't say um, keep yourself busy, you'll get over it. Don't say he, she wouldn't want you to be upset. You know, the, don't say have a drink or eat because that can lead you down another route. The, we all we all try to sort of plug it and stem it, but actually we have to let it. We have to sit with it yeah. and basically say. Something like, I can't begin to imagine what this must be like for you. Yeah. And I'm sure like, you know, probably like you, like anyone who's listening, there's times when I, you know, I'm aware that there's times when I've said things and you're like, later on when you're in, if you're in the middle of it yourself, you've got that deeper level of empathy. I look back, I'm like, oh, I can't believe I said that to that person because that wouldn't have helped at all at that time. But I say, yeah, it's a beautiful way to think about I mean, I wonder if it's a broader way to think about coaching. In some ways, coaching is about not saying the things that don't help. <laughs> you know, you could probably look at it like that all the time, but particularly in those times when people are right in the middle of of something so complex. Yeah, that's a really, really lovely thought. I, I also think just, just having a realisation that um, endings 
are significant for people as a coach. Um, certainly in therapy, there's a lot of focus on the ending of a therapeutic relationship. You can't just go, you know what, I think I've done now. You have to have about three sessions to talk about, you know, what's happened and why you're ending. And, um, and I'm much more in that place now. I mm. like to honour the ending with everything that I bring to the beginning of a coaching relationship. Because, yeah, because yeah, it matters to people. Yeah, it's really, I really love that you said that. Um, I think I, it's really interesting, one of the, perhaps the first coach I hired after I did my training, he just looked after that, the ending of that engagement beautifully. And as soon as he'd done that, like, this is what, you know, for, for people, this is why you should hire yourself a coach sometimes, because you just learn an enormous amount from what it's like. And he held that ending so beautifully. What was really interesting, I later did another engagement with him where he didn't do that. I, I, did, I haven't asked him why, but it was like, we got halfway through the last session. I was like, he's not doing that that thing. So I was like, wait, wait, it's the ending. Can we? It was great. By then I knew, I was like, this is this matters to me. And we slowed down, even, even just honoring the ending for a short part of that last session made a lot of difference. And, it, you know, <laughs> sometimes I want, so in my coaching, one-on-one -on -one coaching work, I... I have very fixed start and ends to my coaching engagements. And sometimes I think that that is why I don't get repeat clients very much. And I don't get like, I, you know, there's something about, I don't, I could, if I structured my engagements differently, I would have more ongoing clients, I think. But I don't care about that when I'm not worried about money because I think that those endings and having that really, holding that ending in a really beautiful way. Yeah, I, I love doing that. And I think it's, you know, I, I guess I, in some ways, I, I, di I didn't study counselling and psychotherapy in a big way, but I, I was like dipping my toe in it before I found coaching. And so some of that awareness of that idea of, you know, most of us don't, you know, we, le we all learn different things about beginnings and endings in all kinds of ways. And so when I'd read that and some of those things, like you say, in psychotherapy about managing that ending, and I don't know if this is psychotherapy or, or, or if this is something I read in that research, but, you know, modelling a healthy yeah. end. Yeah, totally. It's something that most of us don't have. And, you know, my ending pattern is like, I'm always the last person at the end of a, after I've met up with friends, I'm always on the last person at the street corner, right? Hanging on to that, that, that <laughs> night out or that meeting up. And that's, that, if I'm not careful, that's how I am with my clients as well. So I am careful so that we get the end, but there is something about, about endings. Yeah. There that is, I think is really there important. Is. I'm just thinking I can expect to be here till uh, this evening now. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. That's yeah. why we have to put an, an end time into the conversation, <laughs> yeah. uh, Kim. Otherwise, I would just be like, this, like I, and this is this is a part of who I am, right? It's like, ah, oh, this I'm having so much fun. I, Let's this is great. It. Let's keep it going forever. And of course, that's not possible. And it, and it has negative, you know, like most things that feel great at one time. If you take them too far, they have negative side effects, which is. I'm having a wonderful time now. If we speak till this evening, we might continue to have a wonderful time. We might not, but I would miss out on my coaching call this afternoon, my, my coaching calls this afternoon, and and lunch with my wife and all kinds of things. So <laughs> don't worry, we will have an ending to this call. Um, but I wonder, <laughs> yeah, hopefully, I wonder, like, for you, and I, I don't know whether you know you're in this really nice place where you can talk about this from your experience coaching clients from what you teach coaches from what um, you've seen coaches do and where it's worked and where it hasn't. When it comes to endings and maybe taking that whole idea of 
creating how we work with people in order to give them what they support them with things including endings like what what have you learned about that or or what have you seen really work or how how do you work Mm. before I answer I'm genuinely interested in what your first coach did that was so memorable and impactful yeah it was really simple and I actually do it now but I tend to do it even more than him you know and this is weirdly like I almost feel the tears coming back now it's like really touching that we'd done six months of work speaking probably average every two weeks maybe for six months and he He'd, he just sat down, I think, before the call and brought up, you know, what he did was he brought up the kind of four or five moments from the last six months that I can't remember how he framed it, that, that, that had touched him or had felt significant or had felt like they were turning points. And, you know, I can kind of still remember them now. And this would have been tw- early 2016 or something, probably. Um just as a way and then he just yeah just shared some of how he felt about the engagement and you know not in a you know it's and this is an interesting balance for for people to to hold but some of his reflections on what I'd done really and some of you know there was he might have said he was proud which is not like it's not like I needed that but it was just a you know this yeah here I can get the feeling now it's like god you know I have worked really hard at this stuff that we've been doing and um, to the acknowledgement and validation that someone else had seen that was really powerful. And yeah, so it was, that's, so this is, so that's for people who are listening, this is Joel Monk, who is, um, runs a really interesting company called Coaches Rising and was a guest on the podcast that, that was me co- coaching from Joel on that. Yeah, it was, it was beautiful. And so quite often that's kind of thing is what I do with my clients. I sit down with them. I bring them to mind. I bring the work we've done to mind and guide them through some of that in different ways. That sounds beautiful. That sounds beautiful. Yeah, I do that too. I, I I sometimes find myself saying, I wish I'd sort of videoed you when you first came in here. Yeah. And now look at you. Mm. I, I often I I often look at that, you know, the arc of our story together. Um uh, sometimes have a more ritualistic kind of both bring something, both bring an object or a, some a, you know piece of writing or something that represents how this has been. Um, sometimes review high points and challenging moments. But I really think it's important, as you said, to to actually really um, internalize the learning, uh, as you, as Joel did with you. Mm. To go, yeah, have worked hard. Yeah, it hasn't just happened, um, uh, and leave leave that memory and that space for the clients to return so I I was going to say I don't think your your sort of hard beginnings and endings have anything to do with not having ongoing clients actually Mm. (laughs) I think I think what you're doing is uh, having a really beautifully boundaried and appropriate ending that leaves people knowing that when they want to come back to you, they can because they know just what it's going to be. 
Yeah. Yeah. And it feels, you know, I don't know how how you feel about it, but it feels important to me to have those boundaries. Like I don't want people to have to work with me forever. (laughs) I want them to come with something. I want us to do some, you know, ideally powerful and impactful work. And then I want them to go off and have an amazing life. And, And if they want to come back at some point in the future, amazing. Yeah. Like, especially if we've done some beautiful work, but if they're, yeah. if, if they've got what they need from coaching and from me or, or from coaching with me, you know, if we've done even better yeah. in some ways, it's easier, I, I, easier to say when, 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 when I'm, when the money pressure or something like that isn't going on, but I, you know, the higher parts of me, the, the, they, I know that the whole time. right? Yeah, me too. I, I, I sometimes even in the session. So I saw a, a client a, a few weeks ago um, and we were just sort of both sitting there going, like, why are you here? So I said, why are you here? I know her. I've seen her a few times. So I don't know, really. So I said, well, let's, like, let's not waste an hour of your time and my time just going through the motions and trying to find things. She said, really? So I said, like, bank it, you know? And uh, and whilst we usually sort of sell, if you like, six-session programmes of coaching, they're not rigid. We will always say you might be done in two or three, in which case, great. You might want another two or three. But, yeah, I work like you do in that way. And is that, uh, you know, thinking about both what you teach to people, what you do now with your associate coaches and, and how you work, is that, does that tend to be how you go with six sessions or so and how often do they happen and, 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 and that kind of thing? What have you learned about how to, I guess, how to manage the, this interesting question about yeah. how often should we meet and how yeah. and what that looks like? Yeah, I mean, I think it has to be negotiated individually every time, and it depends. And it depends on the immediacy of somebody's situation. I think sometimes people might want to meet more frequently at the beginning, and then and then less frequently towards the end. But as a general rule, um, and, and we are, we don't hold anyone to it, and we're not wedded to it. But as a general kind of framework, we say six sessions. We used to say two hours when we were always doing face-to-face. We're now saying 90 minutes because I think 90 minutes is fine online. Um, Generally about a month apart, so kind of six-month span. Yeah, and and then that shifts as the relationship evolves. Yeah, yeah. Is that what you do? Real mixture. Um, depending on how I work and because sometimes if I'm working through an associate arrangement of some kind there's it's quite one of the things I've loved actually about doing that work with other people is uh, or you know on behalf of somebody else is it's great when they have a model that's slightly different to how I've ended up working because then you get to experience working like that and you think oh there's some really good things about this and now I know when this is really useful and when it's not Um, yeah I mean the way I actually structure my engagements I'm actually doing something different this autumn because like I was saying before we switched on, we're having a baby soon. And I realized that my normal six month engagements would look a bit weird with a, cause I'm going to take a month or five weeks, six weeks off. Yeah. It would look weird with this big gap in the middle. So I decided to do something different, kind of a bit more intense in the autumn and we'll see how those people <laughs> reflect on it in, in later. But 
one of the things I found really speaking to that that thing that, that you've just been saying is I really like keeping it flexible yeah. um, because it really depends on the person. And you, if you get someone who a big part of why they want to work with a coach is because they've got some important meeting coming up in in four weeks time. Well, it's not that helpful to them to say, right, I'll see you just after that meeting in a month, <laughs> right? Probably want to fit in a few, you know, one or two calls before then. Um, but also sometimes, yeah, and the rhythm can can change in that way. Um, but it's always really interesting to just to, I don't know, it's one of the things I'm curious about. And, you know, I think I know what I believe the answer is, which is what you said, really, which is it depends, um, you know, in some way and just depends on the person and the coach and all that kind of thing. But it's, you know, I think if we're wondering about, if we're curious about how do you take those conditions that you brought in for adult learning and you take these kind of technologies of coaching, the basic stuff, and then all the other things that, you know, like that beautiful uh, chair exercise that you mentioned, how do we take them and make them effective for people? And one of the questions that's in there for any coach starting out is, yeah, I know that a coaching session is powerful and can be really, really transformational for people and can can get them to places they wouldn't have got to otherwise. But what's the best way for me to do that? <laughs> and so that's why it's interesting to ask that question. And what's the best way now? And how do I, you know, to me, it feels pretty clear that although sometimes one session is all people need right now, usually a series of sessions gives people something extra that they don't get by only speaking to a coach once yeah um, but beyond that it's a really just such an interesting part of the craft or the art of coaching I think yeah and and it and it's about finding out about your clients as well isn't it about what motivates them how sort of fast-paced they are how reflective they are whether they like uh reading writing whether the whether they like being creative it's it you the, that's really the skill of the coach getting to know that person and knowing how they will get the best out of them and not being led by your own preferences so being as fluid and flexible as possible and I also think in a way that yes those structures help particularly the you know the returning bits so that you the, there is a level of continued support and accountability and a reason for you to do the kind of yeah, and also that that thing with the endings thing right so one of the nice things about those endings is you're sat back with the same person that you were x months ago yes yeah um but i think mainly it's the it's the quality of the relationship yeah that brings about the change i think because of all the things that we talked about at the beginning of this um, episode um, uh, about the transformation that the coach goes through on their coach training, um, in a really great coaching relationship, the coach the coach is working in the here and now actually. The coach is seeing that person um, and noticing their adapted behaviours, not in a way that Freud, you know, needed to put you in discomfort, but just hearing the unsaids and calling them out 
uh, and giving the message that actually you don't have to do that here. You don't have to do that here. Here you can just be who you are. And, and this is maybe for some people the first time that they can let go of their need to be tough, the tough boss or the people pleaser. Uh, and, and, and that comes from the relationship that the coach builds, the express permission and the, and the holding up the mirror and saying, I notice you do this. Uh, and also for me in the way that I work, actual practical rehearsal of being different in the, in the room. Um, I, I wrote actually in the, in the coach's case book in the um, people pleasing chapter, I remember writing and, and yeah, most of those were real life case studies, just anonymized. Uh, a woman who was such a people pleaser, and I, and, I, and I just every time at the end of every session said, "Right, what did what did I do that you didn't like?" So it it's that kind it's that kind of thing that's memorable, I think, mm-hmm. and that it's that that's important about coaching. It's really big for me, I think. It's another adult human being um, with whom you just learn you can be yourself and drop drop the pretenses. And again, if we go back to the coach training room where, where... people learn to become coaches there's a lot of that happening isn't there there's the love of the cohort they've never met people like it before they're Mm. friends for life and they genuinely are sometimes but that's it's you know NLP says experience has structure and and that has structure it doesn't just happen happens for all the things that we've said and it's because they can I can drop all the things that they learn to do to get through life and and know, hey, it's okay. Yeah. And again, just going back to earlier in the conversation when we were talking about, well, these people don't know this. It's like, just remember that if you're bringing that kind of, if you if you can live in that space with clients where, you know, I love that thing you said, you, do, you don't have to do that here. Just that that feeling, like that in itself is a, is an experience that most people don't have most of the time. Yeah. Uh, incredible gift that we can give to clients. Um, Kim, I'm aware because we've named it that we have to bring this conversation to a close at some point. Um, uh, like, this, I mean, of course, with someone with this breadth and depth of experience, there's there's a million avenues we could have gone down in this call that, that we haven't. We've, you know, we've touched on on one of your books. We haven't talked about the other. I guess just before we before we bring it to a close, and I've got a couple of other questions I want to do that. What, what are the bits of your work that we haven't touched on yet that, that feel important that you'd like to bring in? Oh, gosh. <laughs> there doesn't have to be an answer. I've just named the book. The books are there, and, and people can can check them out. It might, I mean, it might be interesting for you to speak to a little bit to that, but people can look, can look yeah, them up as well. Yeah, I don't... I, I don't, I, I can't, I don't know, actually. Um, I always say, you know, we're, we're fairly, so we do coaching, um, we do group coaching, we do team coaching, we do coaching for loss, we do coaching skills for parents, that's something I'm very excited about. Mm-hmm. 
that's something I'm excited about for you. Yeah, yeah. After January. Absolutely. But that is something very dear to me. I want to say a bit about that. Yeah, There's quite uh, some time. Remember I said originally I was working with families, so I also did quite a lot on, on you know, psychology of children and families and um so quite a few years ago in 2007 I thought it would be really great to write a coaching skills for parents program that was because lots of people who'd come on our coach training program said this has changed me as a parent and they said where can I find out more and I kept saying oh I don't know I don't know, because there had, there were lots of sort of remedial parenting programs or super nanny type things. But I thought, oh, there isn't anything that just is how do you apply coaching to your family life? So I wrote this program in 2007 with a colleague and we actually made it a sort of licensed program. I trained lots of people to be uh, coaches doing that and it went really well for about a year we sold it into city group we sold it into really big organizations and then it was 2008 it was the financial crisis and we weren't established enough so I put it on ice uh, and I resurrected it a few years ago actually um and so now we are we're not licensing it we just people can come and do it and they can have the materials because I so believe in it as simple coaching things for children it's such a fun fun program Mm -hmm. I'm very proud that we've taught it at Morgan Stanley and Canary Wharf I've been there for um, a few years now Um, I do it at lunchtime and about a hundred or 120 people come in, mostly dads, really desperate to know more about how they can support their children. It's lovely. It's yeah. absolutely lovely. So, so yeah, we do, we do that. We have the cards. We have the books. We have products. We train supervisors. We offer co- coach, coaching supervision. Yeah, Kim, say, say some more about that because I think, you know, it's clear if people dip into your work that about how you know that you believe really believe in that as a as an important um part of of coaching and a coach's work and life and you know people have listened to lots of episodes will have heard other guests talking about it but uh, I wonder if you could just speak a little bit to both um both the why it's important for coaches to have supervision and also a little bit about maybe about yeah the the work the supervision because you do some supervision training yeah we, do, yeah we run a another post uh, graduate yeah. certificate uh, in coaching supervision and that is uh has icfcc points attached to it it's not a sort of a credit coach training program yeah again it's something i always believed in because of my background in therapy um it was not even you know you have to have it it's an absolute requirement so i've been championing that for a long time and and i'm pleased to see that it's gaining it's gaining momentum now more and more coaches are accessing supervision i think it can be summed up quite easily in the um you know the, the sort of three pronged supervision approach which is it's formative, normative, and restorative. 
formative being you acquire new skills, you get some steer from a more experienced coach when you're at your wit's end and they say, well, try this. Um, normative is making sure, you know, and, and I would say most coaching is about contracting most supervision is about contracting issues and ethics so i i think that's true as well it's so funny like every time i i go to a supervision session the answer is always contracting basically it's like whatever has happened in the in with the client that has brought you know got me that i'm bringing to the session or anyone that i've ever been in a supervision call with has brought to the supervisor the answer is almost always contracting. it always is yeah almost always is um uh and then the other one is restorative, which is just kind of it's lonely out there, especially if you're just a, you know, the one self-employed coach, especially if you're newly qualified, especially if you're not. Uh, uh, however long you've been doing it, it's really useful to sometimes get a reassurance a pat on the back a reminder that you're doing well as well a bit like Joel did for you yeah. <laughs> supervisor say look what you did for that client actually because and I I I still run a couple of closed supervision groups myself every time I marvel at I marvel at the beauty of supervision actually because I sit there with six people and they bring their clients to life in the room and they care and they angst and they're asking, how can I be better for them? And then all seven of us sit around really thinking about that. How can we? What could you do differently? What part of you is getting in the way here? And we, we sort of sort the coach out and put them back together so that they can go back and do it. And we, and we arm them with confidence and tools and techniques. And, and I say, gosh, I wonder if those clients know that all seven of us are thinking about them here today mm. and, and how we could, can best help them so I think it's it's I think it's essential I think it's essential to be challenged as a coach to not get into bad habits to not get sloppy to keep learning uh, and it's essential for the clients to know that their coach is also being supported yeah yeah and and yeah and and just for what it's worth I, you know yeah supervision has been really important for me and what an amazing way to learn and get better at the craft as well as um as all kinds of other things and it occurs to me that it it also provides those set again those same qualities um for adult learning are present in it in lots of ways um yeah aren't they yeah and lots about reflective practice you know really learning to how to reflect on your practice too yeah and and Kim, um, the other thing I just want to ask about um, is like this year that we've been in, you know, I know that some of the you've had to move some of your training online, presumably throughout the coronavirus situation for listeners like we're recording this, like I said, at the end of 2020, things may have moved on by the time the episode comes out. But if if, if things do go back to somewhat normal. 
What do you think as a training organization, maybe as a coach as well, you'll have learned from this period that you'll take out and and keep using once the pandemic goes back to whatever happens after it? Yeah, a great question. Thank you. Um, masses. Mm-hmm. Um, masses. Um on a really practical level, uh, you've you know you've heard the story of Barefoot. Now, it had all been face to face. Every single thing we'd done had been face to face until March, and um, I also did face to face coaching. If if I occasionally had to do what was then a Skype call, usually. I was like, oh, Skype call, oh, and I would get all in a tiz about it. And <laughs> um, So we were really very much about being in the room with people, whatever we were doing. So in March, we just, yeah, well, I, I think I locked myself into a room for a weekend and just thought, what am I going to do? <laughs> um and we we very quickly just got our main courses online, and we also developed a series of short online courses as well. So, uh, so in terms of the online courses, what I realised, and this is for anyone who's got a business, I think, uh, or anyone who's got a, a range of training products, coaching tools, techniques, and. Um, I thought and I looked at our kind of assets and resources and we've got so many that were just sitting on on our system, never being used. So I thought I'm going to just get all those and turn them all into just short online courses, which was tremendously invigorating for us and for our for all our clients. So I think there's that, you know, just like uh, we said earlier, don't assume that other people know this stuff. Also, don't forget what you've already created and keep using it. Um, so, we, yeah, we learned loads of stuff. First of all, we learned that we can do the course online. And to our astonishment, all those elements that we've spoken about so far are exactly the same online. I saw on LinkedIn yesterday that one of the online cohorts that finished recently, some uh, one of the delegates, it was her 50th birthday, I think, and she said, I wasn't even going to do anything because of lockdown, but what a surprise that all my cohort from my course had set up this surprise online birthday party for me. You know, she's like, I've made friends for life. And I, that's really, you know, just totally made me realise that this stuff works virtually yeah. just as well. There were tweaks. That's probably another conversation about, you know, how to really get the best out of it. Um, I also learned that our... Um, conferences our cpd days in lovely hotels in london with lovely food uh, from nine till five that cost about 400 quid to attend and i used to say why aren't people coming well there there were all the reasons it was expensive uh, 
didn't fit with people's childcare arrangements, that not everyone lives in London, blah, 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 blah. And so now uh, we have a range of lovely short online courses that people are attending from all over the world. So our reach has mm. grown enormously. We've had people signing up for our main coach training course saying, you know, that I live in Singapore. I've always wanted to do your course. Now I can. And it's a bit, been a bit of a duh moment like (laughs) really you know how how did I not think of this um we've also uh noticed that people and organizations are I think more willing to talk about the emotional aspects of their lives in this time um and we have been running really short uh, one-hour courses on coping with stress and anxiety, building resilience, coping with loss, grief and uncertainty. I've been running in organisations as well during this time. Um, uh, and probably before we would have not offered those, I think, in quite the same way. Um I've, we've, I've learned that I didn't need to invest in a big office in a business park and spend a fortune making it look like Google's headquarters um, at the beginning of this year because we haven't been in it. Oh, no. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah, it is. <laughs> um, but I've also learned that, you know, the team... My team has been superb, um, conscientious, caring, supportive, diligent, worked their socks off from home under all sorts of difficult circumstances with children, dogs, um, partners, and and they've just done a tremendous job. I've always been a trusting and generous, I think, you know, employer I've never been Dickensian in the way that I employ people but I will you know now I I think there are no rules really they can work whenever they want to from wherever they want to so there have been really important pieces of learning which I think will change the way in which we work and probably many other organizations too yeah yeah absolutely there is just that sense it's you know I guess it's sometimes feels tricky to talk about um because of people are suffering now but there's lots of innovation that's happening now too yeah um, i can kind of hear that hear that yeah. hear that in your business and working practices as well and i i'm fa- as a kind of you know uh i mean as a coach i guess i'm kind of professional but certainly amateur social scientist right it's like i'm so interested to see what will happen with yeah. working practices over the next few years with people's decisions about where they live all these things all these things might change um kim before we finish, I want to ask you a question a bit like what you, the last question, um, promise, uh, here we go. I, I kind of hinted that two questions ago was the last question, but I'm hanging on to this ending like, like always. Um, no, so um, we haven't mentioned at all, I don't think, on 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 this episode that you have a podcast as well or, or through Barefoot. And one of the, it's another actually, I thought of it at the start of the conversation, but I'm pretty sure I didn't mention it because it it, it gives that feeling of what it must be like to be you um, with all these people that have gone on to do amazing things because the people who are on, are they always, or at least they're, they're often alumni and 
um, they, they, yeah, who have created amazing impact in the world. And it, you know, that in itself must be a pleasure for you. But you quite often, at least sometimes ask them at the end, what are the tips that you give to new coaches starting out? And of course, you've written a book about it, Coaches Survival Guide. But, uh, you know, if, if what would be the like top one or two things that you would say that we might not have touched on or, or you might want to emphasize something we have for a, a new coach starting out or someone who's experienced but wants to take their work to a different a different level? Gosh, I think, yeah, read the book, I would say, because that was why I wrote the book, because people have asked me the same questions so many times. And I really desperately care that I am training people to do a job that will be a real job. Yeah, I, I, I would never keep training people to be coaches if I didn't think that they could make money from it. I couldn't do that. So I, I wrote the book to help them. So I think all the, what are the biggest, biggest tips? They've been embedded in this conversation, I think, Robbie. Mm. One is value all that you are bringing to the coaching relationship you're not an absolute beginner most people who are drawn to coaching have been coaching in other ways for most of their lives and they have a wealth of experience in business in organizations in the voluntary sector as a human being as a parent um, anyway that they can that that sort of gives them experiences and empathy to support other people the coach training has very often just been putting those you know putting a framework around things that they were already doing so so I want them to remember all that's come behind them to get them to this point and don't feel like an imposter or who am I to be doing this um and along with that, I suppose, comes charging appropriately for your services. Um, don't believe the BS that lots of coaches give. I've heard quite a lot of coaches like scaring people talking about telephone number figures. And there aren't many people earning that sort of money. Um, and um, it, it, keep learning, keep getting supervised. Um, don't worry about finding a niche if you, if one isn't there readily. It will find you. It will find you if it's going to, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with being a generalist coach anyway. So don't, don't obsess about those things. Don't put all those things in the way before going out there and getting the work. Talk about coaching everywhere you go with enthusiasm and without selling but but coach people show them what it's like to be coached and they will come to you those are my quick quick tips <laughs> and and as you have you could write a chapter about kind of each of each of those so um, people can definitely definitely check that out look kim thanks so much for this time today um uh, I know that people who are listening, people who know your work and or have been really touched by it themselves or indirectly will will love it. Um, and people who ha haven't come across your work before will will have loved this conversation too. Um, and 
Yeah, I mean, it's clearly in the UK, I mean, and across the world, even more so now, you've had a massive impact on the world of coaching. And so, you know, thank you for that too. Thank you, Robbie. I've absolutely loved being with you and um, learning from you too, actually. I, I feel... I feel like I'm going to take some tips from the way that you've done this podcast. Mm-hmm. I'm going to hang around on the street corner a bit longer, chatting <laughs> with a glass of beer in my hand. Yeah, yeah. I can't wait till we can actually do that again. I'm really looking forward to that. Um, that would be nice. Oh, <laughs> yeah. uh, dear Kim, thanks so much. Um, and yeah, look, um, it's been such a pleasure. And I'm sure that people who have listened to, to this will get that as well and, and look forward to speaking again at some time in the future. Thank you. It's been a real privilege. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to that episode with the amazing Kim Morgan. I hope you got a sense of who Kim is and and, and what an amazing thought leader um, and influencer in the world of coaching she is and, and what amazing work she's done creating that training, which has made such a difference to so many people. Um, before you go on to whatever else you've got going on in the rest of your day, I wanted you to let you know about um, two ways to support the Coach's Journey podcast. You've made it all this way through. You probably enjoyed the episode. Otherwise, you should have stopped earlier. Um, and that, yeah, there are two ways that you might want to contribute to the podcast continuing, but also get some get some interesting things for yourself too. So one is you might just want to become a supporter of the Coach's Journey podcast. Give a little bit of money every month to help keep the podcast going. Um, help it reach more people and um, potentially uh, lead to more episodes in the future. If that sounds good, you can become a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com slash the coach's journey. If you want to support the podcast, but you also want some support from me with your coaching, with your coaching business, with your life, then you might be interested in becoming a member of the Coach's Journey community. Um, This is my attempt to create a flexible, affordable way of working with me. Um, I I designed it and and, uh, curate it so that it can become, hopefully, uh, a community in which you can work on how to thrive as a person, how to thrive in your coaching business, um, and also just connect to some other people who also love the craft of coaching um, and are working on bringing that to the world themselves too. Uh, that starts from as little as £10 a month, goes up to about £100 a month. There are still a couple of spaces left at that £100 a month uh, membership level. Um, you get access to group coaching calls with me and and at some levels one-on-one coaching calls with me. Um, you can read loads more about that at thecoachesjourney.com slash community and you sign up also on the Patreon page, patreon.com slash thecoachesjourney. A big thank you, an ongoing thank you to Alex Swallow, Kira Eastall, Janet Macaluso, uh, Joey Owen, Ken Brewer and Sean McMonagall for their ongoing support. And of course, for everyone else who's supported The Coach's Journey in all uh, kinds of ways over the last um, year and a bit since it started. Uh, if you'd like to support but, but becoming a supporter or um, a community member right now isn't the right thing, leave a review, tell someone about the podcast tweet about it, um, whatever it is. I I'm, I'm really love um, how far this podcast has already travelled, which includes to India and Singapore, but also throughout throughout the UK um, and, and into America. So please do keep that going um, and I uh, hope we'll have you with us on the Coach Journey podcast again soon. Mm-hmm.